Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Does God care about social justice? What is social justice? Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. I'm really excited today about the conversation that I was recently able to have with Dr. Thaddeus Williams, author of a brand new book, very important, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Of this book, civil rights leader John Perkins says this, Dr. Thaddeus Williams and his 12 co-authors are important voices for helping us pursue the kind of justice that starts with God, champions our oneness in Christ, declares the gospel, and refuses to compromise truth. And that's just a ringing endorsement. One of the reasons why I love this book is that it's so clear, biblical, and compassionate. So we don't have to separate out thinking well and doing good. We all know that good intentions are not enough. And that's one of the things I love about Dr. Thaddeus Williams and what he brings to the table. Thaddeus Williams loves engaging students. He teaches at Biola University in La Mirada, California, where he serves as assistant professor of systematic theology for Talbot School of Theology. He's taught philosophy and literature at Saddleback College, jurisprudence at Trinity Law School, and is a lecturer in worldview studies at Labrie Fellowships in Switzerland and Holland, and ethics for Blackstone Legal Fellowship, the Federalist Society in Washington, D.C. He resides in Orange County, California with his wife and four kids, And I just want to invite you into this conversation that I was recently able to have with Dr. Thaddeus Williams. Welcome to the Gen Z Lab and this conversation, this really important conversation around social justice and all the issues surrounding it. Really excited to have my friend Thaddeus Williams here to talk about his brand new book, Confronting Injustice, where he dives into these topics. And so really excited about this conversation, how important it is culturally. But Welcome. Thanks so much for spending some time. It's a joy to be with you, John. Yeah, and thank you for writing this book. But first, maybe a little little backstory. This is kind of a big topic in culture right now. I know we're going to dive into particulars, but maybe give us a 30,000-foot view of kind of what's going on here and then why you started writing this book. Like, when did it become apparent to you that you needed to, yeah. to write something on this? Yeah. That's a good question. I would say, you know, like you, I've been doing apologetics ministry for a long time now. And I don't know about you, but the number one question I had for years and years and years was some version of the problem of evil. If God is so good, why is the universe so messed up? That was the top of the list for probably the last 20 years. And I noticed in the last four to five years, that's all shifted. There's a new front runner. And whether I'm teaching here in the States, around the country, off in Europe, it has become how as Christians do we think about the raging social justice controversies of the 21st century, whether that's racism, whether that's sexuality, whether that's religious freedom, whether it's sexism, gender, all of those issues that just light up our news feeds every day, that has slowly displaced the problem of evil as the number one question. And so that was the first motive was seeing like, man, there's, there's a sea change in the culture right now and we need to be able to shed biblical clarity on that or we're kind of missing the point. Um, a second factor I would say 
I noticed with my students starting over the last five years, I'm a professor at Biola University, and I saw many of my students who started out in my freshman year Foundations of Christian Thought class, Intro to Christian Worldview, just excited about the gospel. They want to impact the nations with the good news of Jesus, the every tongue, tribe, nation vision of Jesus. And then somewhere along the way, they would get sort of duped into an ideology about social justice that turned them from manifesting the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on, to slowly becoming easily offended, unlike biblical love in that famous wedding passage, right? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, love is not easily offended. I found that them becoming easily offended, resentful, bitter, always assuming the worst of other people's motives, self-righteous, uh, and in some cases, the gospel itself got left behind. The belief in the authority of Scripture got left behind. And so I saw this with a handful of students and some of my friends who started getting swept up in these same ideologies. And so I realized, like, at this critical cultural moment, we need biblical clarity now more than ever on what justice means, what justice should look like, so that instead of the kind of mainstream stereotype, oh, Christians are always on the wrong side of history, um, that we could be on the right side of Scripture with all this to speak to these crazy polarized times that we're in. Absolutely, and I think it's such a needed work, so insightful and so helpful. But let's just start at a, at a basic level. I know we're going to get into some of the categories and distinctions you introduce in a little bit. But does God care about justice? Maybe let's start there. Yes. Uh, hearty, yes, 110%. You see it from the Old to the New Testament. God does not suggest, he commands over and over and over again that we do justice. You know, most of you out there are familiar with the famous passage in Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord, it's not suggest of you, what does the Lord require of you to do justice? That's a divine requirement. And then it goes on to, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so I think there's no question about it if we're starting with scriptures, our authority, because God cares so profoundly about justice, then we should too. Now here's a key distinction is in Jeremiah chapter 7, the text says, truly execute justice. Truly execute justice. And so kind of the, the built-in presupposition of a text like that is that there are untrue ways to execute justice. There's ways to think that we're doing it God's way when we're actually, we've bought into some ideology that is, at the end of the day, incompatible with Scripture. Yeah, that's really helpful, and it's really important at the outset to talk about, because this is such a polarizing issue today, and there's so many different perspectives on it. We need to state clearly and emphatically that God cares about justice. We just need to make sure we're understanding what is God's vision for justice as we go. But one of the things that stuck out to me um, was um, John Perkins, civil rights leader, who, who wrote the foreword to your book and, and, and said this, the 12 questions that you raise in this book are the right questions we should all be asking in today's troubled world. Read with an open mind, risk a change of heart, don't get swept along into false answers that lead to only more injustice. 
And I thought that was a really kind way of framing the issue. But talk about maybe even your relationship with him and even how that came about in this forward. Because I think someone who has lived injustice yeah. happening to him and his family, like, talk a little bit about that and kind of how that came about and why that's so important. Sure. Um, Dr. P or John Perkins uh, has, I'd say in the last year, he's become um, not just a dear friend, but a mentor to me. Um, we talk almost weekly, and he has just been such an ongoing inspiration, and he shaped a lot of my thinking in the book and was kind and gracious enough to, to offer his foreword. And that came about through, we have a mutual friend out in Southern California who read a pre-published manuscript and was like, I gotta get this in the hands of John Perkins. Him and Perkins are like best buds. Um, so he made the introduction, and we became fast friends to the point where I think for the first month we were calling each other like every other day or sometimes every day. And one of the things that I found so inspiring about John, for those of you who aren't familiar with his story, he was actually raised in rural Mississippi on a cotton plantation. And his mother died of malnutrition when John was just a baby. And one of the reasons behind that was she couldn't get just basic medical care because of the skin color, because of the high levels of melanin in her skin cells, she was somehow deemed less human, less worthy of basic medical care. So he loses his mom in part to racism when he's a baby. Well, fast forward about 13 years and he loses his big brother who was a World War II veteran. He came back from World War II with a purple heart. And so John, he's a teenager at this point, they go out to the movies one night and a racist town marshal in Mississippi guns his brother down. And so John Perkins was actually in the ambulance when his brother died in his arms. So he, now he's lost two family members at the hands of racism. So fast forward a few years, he moves, he says, I gotta get out of Mississippi, comes out to Southern California, he's in Pasadena, and at this point, he's getting um, swept up as a leader in the civil rights movement. Well, he gets thrown into Pasadena jail and him and his fellow civil rights brothers and sisters are, are getting beat up by the racist cops. And, and the way he, he explained it to me, you could hear, he just celebrated his 90th birthday about two months ago now. You could hear all those years later that it still just deeply affects him. In his mind, it sounds like it happened yesterday. And he says that they would actually like take a fork and they would bend the prongs down on the side and jam it in his nose. And he would just start bleeding profusely. They would jam it down his throat. Um, they, they were lashing him and his brothers and sisters on the head and there's just puddles of blood. And then just to add insult to injury, just to treat them like even less of the image bearers of God that they are, these racist, cops would make them like mop up their own blood. So here's a man, he got hospitalized by that incident. And as he's in the hospital, he, he's seething with rage, as I think we all would be after experiencing that level of injustice. And he said he could have easily, the easiest thing in the world for him would have been to return hate with more hate. But Jesus had a different plan for John Perkins' life. 
he, he says it in, in his foreword to the book that you can't answer hate with hate. You can only answer hate with love. And so through that process, Jesus saves him. The Holy Spirit regenerates his heart. He realizes I've been forgiven by the sovereign God of the universe. Now I want to spend the rest of my life doing ministry, becoming a change agent for justice, not in spite of the gospel, but precisely because of the gospel, because he's convinced that's the only way out of the mess we're in. And so he just adds a, a credibility. He's been pursuing justice for 60 years, now through the John and Vera May Perkins Foundation. Um, and so to be able to learn at his feet and have him write a, the foreword was an incredible honor. Yeah, and, and I'm so appreciative that you shared that story because I think what's coming together, not only in his forward, but just his life and, and what you write in this book, is that these deeply affect real people Yes, and are deeply emotional, racism's real, all these different kind of things. And we need to think very carefully and biblically about this as well. And he's, he's saying, yeah, ask the right questions, pursue this with the gospel, right? Yeah. And that's what I love about this book. And so as we go on in this conversation, you're going to be hearing about how we make distinctions and also how to apply this as we move forward to talk biblically about social justice. What is social justice? Um, that term is everywhere. Um, I haven't done a check recently, but how many times it's been Googled, but I bet a lot. So, but I also bet there's a big variance in how that term is understood. And some uh, Christians have even said, okay, should we use the term social justice? Is that a secular category? Should we not? Is it biblical? Should we come up with our own term? But in, in your book, you kind of make some distinctions. Kind of help us unpack how to think about this biblically as, as kind of framing what is social justice. Sure. I mean, you put the word social next to the word justice. It's sort of like throwing Mentos into a soda can. Like it is an explosive word combination. Uh, people bring a lot of baggage to it, a lot of emotional baggage, a lot of experiential baggage to the definition of social justice. And so I want to start by pointing out the term was coined by Christian theologians historically over 200 years ago. So if we're just looking at the genesis of the term, it is a Christian term. It was later co-opted or hijacked um, by secular ideologies, mostly Marxist ideologies, communist ideologies, socialist ideologies of the 19th and into the 20th century. And so there is a whole like hornet's nest of controversy about what the word means. And what's crazy when I was doing my research, I found that you could find like labor unions citing social justice. You could find um, gender studies, women's studies, whiteness studies, departments, sociology departments at major universities, same word combination. But this is what blew my mind. Even the American Nazi party cites those two words, social justice. They believe what they're doing for the cause of white supremacy is to bring about social justice. And, and so when the term is so darn controversial and such a powder keg, it's so combustible, I think it's helpful as a starting point to say what we can all agree on as Christians, wherever we are on the political spectrum, when Antifa and the American Nazi party are both claiming the mantle of social justice, we can all agree that a lot of things being called social justice today aren't real justice. I would hope that's just a basic 
kind of entry point for Christians to have better conversations about this. And so then the conversation becomes, the next good question to ask is, what forms of what's being called social justice might be compatible and which ones are incompatible with a robust biblical worldview? So in the book, I lay out a basic distinction between two versions of social justice. On the one hand, social justice A, this is the kind that's deeply compatible with scripture. This is the kind of justice that honors God as supreme, that recognizes the primacy of the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, that we aren't saved by our activism, but by the finished work of Christ, that values the image of God in everybody, regardless of their skin tone, regardless of their size, regardless of their sexuality or social status, anything like that, that recognizes the Imago Dei, that recognizes God's every tongue, tribe, and nation vision of redemption. All that's social justice A. And just to give sort of a light speed journey through church history, because it's, it's really yeah. inspiring. It's so compelling on um, what social justice A could look like. So think of, uh, you know, let's you and me hop into a DeLorean together. You know, I'll, I'll be Michael J. Fox. You can be, you can be Doc Brown, because I think you're a little older. You, uh, wiser. Yes, older, wiser. Yes. I'm just some little punk wearing whatever. Um, so, so we whisk off 88 miles an hour. Our flux capacitors are fluxing. We generate 1.21 gigawatts, and whoosh, we are in the first and second century AD. In the Roman Empire, there were literal human dumps where unwanted kids were tossed away like garbage. There was this whole infanticide system um, that was part of the Roman Empire. Well, it was our Christian brothers and sisters in the first and second century who said, wait a second, we were deemed unwanted. We were deemed outcasts. We were deemed the blemished. But God the Father, according to Ephesians 1, Paul's argument, has adopted us. He, he's predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. When we were unwanted, he renamed us wanted. When we were blemished, he renamed us unblemished. And so if God the Father does that, and we understand that core gospel reality, that ought to propel us outward to the literal human dumps to take these unwanted kids and to want them and invite them into our homes and adopt them as our cherished sons and daughters and treat them like the image bearers of God that they are. So what's so inspiring is within just three generations from the first into the second century, Christians who had a clear understanding of the gospel, it wasn't even through legislation, it wasn't top down, it was from the bottom up, they put an end to the human dump system in the Roman Empire. That's amazing. And that's, again, Micah 6.8. What does God require to do justice? They were doing justice there in the first and second century. So let's whisk off. You know, we're back in our DeLorean here. And uh, we touch down in, let's say, the 18th and 19th century. At this point, you have slavery in every country on the face of planet Earth. Slavery is a universal. You see it in Brazil, even more slaves in Brazil than were ever brought into the transatlantic slave trade to America. China had one of the largest slave trades on the face of the planet at the time. Uh, India, there are more slaves in India than the entire Western Hemisphere, in the Ottoman Empire at the time, in Africa at the time, and of course, obviously, in America. You have people treating other people like property instead of people. 
And so who rises to that challenge? We'll look at William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and Granville Sharp over in the UK because they were reading their Bibles and they understood the Imago Dei, that everybody bears the image of God, because they understood um, these deep gospel truths that God set us free from slavery to sin, they became the leaders of the abolitionist movement, not just in the UK, but that spread out and they were able to abolish slavery in places like India, in places like China, in the Ottoman Empire, in Africa, across the Atlantic to America, and it was people with a biblical worldview. It was your Frederick Douglasses and your Sojourner Truths and your Harriet Tubmans, who not in spite of, but because of their robust Christian faith, led the charge to abolish slavery, not just in the United States, but in places like the Philippines. The same thing happened with the Dutch in, in South Africa and all around, it was Christians doing justice that brought the legalized slave monster to its knees and effectively abolished it around planet Earth in the 18th and 19th century. That's inspiring. And you don't hear those stories these days because the assumption is, well, Christians have always been on the wrong side of history. But, but there's so many moments to say, look, we want to carry the torch of the first and second century Christians who abolished the human dumps. We want to carry the torch of the 18th and 19th century Christians who abolished slavery. We want to carry the torch of the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of the 20th century and the Sophie Scholes and the Hans Scholes behind the White Rose Society who resisted Hitler and his tyranny. We want to carry that torch onto the 21st century. So that's what I mean by social justice A. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think I love how you kind of map things through history using the Back to the Future reference, which is super helpful um, for all of our Gen Zers out there in case you haven't seen that. But, but yeah, so that's, that's really helpful. But now let's come to social justice B. What, what do you have in mind there? Because I think that's a really important distinction uh, that you're trying to make in the book that will help Christians think more carefully about this. Yeah, so social justice B, instead of um, looking at say the image of God in every human being is something that grounds our shared dignity. Rather than taking serious account, like reckoning with the fact that you're fallen, I'm fallen, we're broken, we're sinners, our hearts are twisted and, and we're morally mangled. And so we need supernatural regeneration. We, we need a whole lot of grace. We all need redemption. Rather than looking to Christ as the ultimate answer to that shared brokenness, that shared fallenness, that shared sinfulness. Social justice B has a very different story of what's wrong with humanity and how we fix it. And so it would say humanity, instead of being seen as like united in our sinfulness, um, would say, no, 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 we need to create a hierarchy and say, you know, you, Jonathan, you are automatically the oppressor. I'm automatically the oppressor. Why? Because I can look at you and see, you know, under these bright lights, the lack of melanin in your skin cells. And me too. So, so by virtue of us being white, we are the oppressors. By vir virtue of us being male, you know, whether you got an XX or an XY chromosome, your, your male or female identity will determine whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed whether you're straight is going to determine whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed. So it has a completely different starting point in the way it, it thinks about 
people. Instead of starting with what we share in common and acknowledging our sinfulness and universal need for redemption, it's going to break people into identity groups, whether they're the oppressed versus the oppressor, and then pit them against each other in this sort of never-ending tribal warfare. That's one mark of social justice B. Let me just briefly hit uh, maybe one or two more. So remember that passage, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, and it lists as one of the attributes of love, it's not easily offended. Social justice B inspires and encourages people to be offended. It's sort of like the more offended you are, the more virtuous you are. Or, or think of the fruit of the Spirit again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Social justice B, you know, going back to Jesus, you can judge a, a tree by its fruits. It produces not the fruit of the Spirit, but these rotten fruits of resentment and chronic triggeredness and quickness to take offense and, and outrage and self-righteousness. So you see some of the differences there. You also see the way it approaches truth instead of scripture being our final standard and God gave us reason and God gave us the laws of logic and God puts us in an ordered structured universe so that we can go out and do, do science and, and look at evidence and facts. That's a robust biblical approach to knowledge. Social justice B, as I argue in the book, it turns the quest for truth into an identity game. And so, based on where I stand on that hierarchy of oppression will determine whether I'm worth listening to. So again, as two white, cis, hetero, gender, patriarchal oppressors, nothing we're saying matters on a, on a social justice B mentality. We have no insight into reality. In fact, James Cone, one of the fathers of social justice B theology says, and I quote, if there's one thing that the cruel history of oppression has taught us, it's that white people can have no insight into reality. No insight into reality. So now we're judging ideas not based on their merit, but based on the melanin, or lack thereof, of the person articulating it. I'm no longer judging ideas based on their scriptural fidelity, uh, but based on the, the sex or chromosomes of the person articulating it. I'm, I'm forming my worldview not based on its credibility, but on the chromosomes of the person articulating it. And that is just, a, in, in the final analysis, a false gospel, a false approach to truth that's a far cry from what we meet in Scripture. Yeah, and it's ultimately not going to lead to redemption or justice in the end. Yep. And I think in the church, there's just a lot of well-intentioned confusion around those things. So I appreciate at a high level starting off with those distinctions around social justice A and social justice B. And so sure. in our next conversation, we're going to begin to dive into some of these things, potential objections, how do these apply, and things like that. But that's a good overview of social justice A and social justice B. So Thaddeus, how can Christians have better conversations about social justice? Well, let me answer that in the negative. Here's two things we shouldn't do. Number one is we shouldn't be guilty of something I call the Newman effect. And I get that term from a viral interview in 2018 between Canadian psychology professor Jordan B. Peterson and uh, Channel 4's Kathy Newman, where they went toe-to-toe -to -toe on some of these hot-button topics, including the gender pay gap, including the patriarchy, including transgenderism. 
And this soon rose to be a meme, a viral meme out of this interview. Because Jordan Peterson would make a point and the response from Kathy Newman would be, so you're saying women just aren't smart enough to run these top companies. Or so you're saying we should align our societies along the lines of lobsters. Or so you're saying transgender activists will lead to the death of millions. And of course, Jordan Peterson wasn't saying any of that. She was deliberately interpreting his points in the most cartoonish, and damnable and inflammatory way possible. And the sad truth is, this is the way we have conversations these days. Take mask wearing with COVID-19. So you're wearing a mask. Obviously, you love tyranny. Obviously, you want a totalitarian government. You're not wearing a mask. So you're saying you want more grandmas to drop dead. Or take um, Black Lives Matter. Somebody makes the statement Black Lives Matter. So you're saying all lives don't matter? Or somebody questions um, whether this or that given case is actual racism. So you're saying there's no racism and you're basically a white supremacist. You might as well be Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Or on the flip side, somebody says racism is still a problem. So you're saying you're some kind of cultural Marxist? Uh, who hates America. And you see how we just tar and feather people's perspectives with the worst possible, most damning interpretation we can imagine. That, my friends, is not a recipe for Christians having good conversations in this age of, of fury and rage. We just got to do better. So how do we have better conversations? First thing, let's not practice the Newman effect. Second thing I would say is we need to be very careful to not buy into divisive propaganda. Now, propaganda has been used all through history. If you look at an SS pamphlet from the Nazis, it says that the Jew only looks human, but in his spirit, he's lower than an animal. If you look at the Hutu uh, propaganda to justify the genocide against the Tutsis, the Tutsis were described as inyenzi, or cockroaches. If you look at the Unite the Right rally in, in Charlottesville with men walking through the streets with tiki torches, you know, chanting blood and soil and you will not replace us. They referred to um, black Americans as a subclass of parasitic vermin. This is propaganda and it's what it takes to get image bearers to turn on each other with maliciousness and turn to bloodshed. Now, some of the marks of propaganda, number one, it will rewrite the history of a certain people group to edit out anything positive and just paint them in the worst possible light. Number two, propaganda will then encourage us to see any individual who belongs to that now damnable group, to see any individual as the exemplar of the entire group. So we stop treating individuals as individuals. We begin to treat them as what Shelby Steele called intertemporal abstractions. I don't see Bob in front of me. I see the white patriarchal oppressor. I don't see Jane in front of me. I see a cisgender oppressor. I don't see the unique image bearer because I've been trained to categorize everybody and treat individuals as exemplars. And the final step of propaganda 
is then to blame all of my suffering, all of my pain, all of the turmoil in my life on those damnable groups and every individual who stands for the damnable group. That kind of propaganda is on the rise in the 21st century. You would have thought we learned our lesson from the 20th century, seeing over 100 million casualties of that kind of propaganda. But we are playing the same games today. As Christians pursuing justice in the 21st century, let's not practice the Newman effect and let's not buy into divisive propaganda. To hear more of this conversation and other resources on engaging the next generation, check out genzlab.com, learn more about our experiences, both summer, our fellows, and our masters at impact360.org. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.